0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media on this glorious Tuesday, January 8th. Very, very busy week. Very special week that finally we have this national discussion we've craved, we've yearned for for so long about our border. But it's more than our border. It's our sovereignty. As I wrote today in my article – Every major city and even small town is now a border town. This is the issue. For those of you who have followed me for years, none of this is new really. It's just some of the individual information like we had yesterday in our blockbuster show with Jason Jones, probably among the most knowledgeable people about everything borders, cartels, drugs – not just at a, at a Texas level, but at a international level um, with his work as a captain at a Texas Department of Public Safety. And we're going to try to get that interview transcribed. We're going to have more of those interviews with him and similar people. I'm spending a lot of time, and that's why I'm not sure how much time I'm going to have today. If I could put in a full hour, we'll see where this takes us, but very busy. I have a lot of interviews set up with a lot of different people. And you know, here's the thing. I'm not even a journalist. I'm unabashed about that. You guys know I'm a conservative advocate, conservative activist, lobbyist for liberty, defender of American sovereignty, of our system of governance, our society, our security. But you know, even I have a degree of journalistic intrigue that you want to discover the truth. You want to learn the world as it is, not as you want it to be. What is actually going on? What's going on in these communities? Which cartels are doing what? This is the work the media doesn't want to do. Both these phony, like, never-Trumper type of media outlets, as well as certainly the regular media. I want to give you an analogy, and you knew I was headed here if if you've listened long enough with my football analogies, to where we fit, what we face now and where we are. That on the one hand, we have – this national debate and look, you know I've criticized Trump a lot for not making certain plays I've called for the plays that I, I've called for. So certainly I gotta take yes for an answer when he makes the play And I said he needs to give a televised address while he's doing it now. If you notice the media for the first time ever, I never remember anything like it went nuts not over the content of a speech it wasn't given yet over the premise of giving giving a speech. Why? That tells you how potent the strategy was. They don't want a national debate on this. They don't want people to know how severe the illegal immigration, border problem, drug crisis is. This is why they had to concoct an entire fabricated story about an opioid prescription crisis. Because if people would know. The degree of criminality, the national security threats, the problems with the cartels, and the inherent problems with illegal immigration, and then all the the human trafficking, the slave trafficking, how a lot of this has evolved over the last decade. One of the big themes from yesterday, things that I learned from Jason, was that a lot of the mechanics of Organized international crime has changed. I've heard this from anyone in the know and in, in, in the business, but we have failed to make the case for so long, and this is what allows the media to get away with poo-pooing, scoffing at Trump's assertions, because we've been distracted and we have we we haven't been building this narrative and telling the truth. And as Jason said yesterday. Part of the problem is government hasn't been putting out the information for so long. Now a lot of that you you know the Trump administration is relatively new so they're trying to reinvent the wheel here, but this is a very big problem. Here's the analogy I want to give you. So all of you anyone who follows football obviously saw the blockbuster game with the Cubs um, Chicago Cubs versus the Philly Eagles on Sunday the playoff game where the bears were down by one point came down to five seconds on the clock and they were going to kick a, what well, should have been a game winning field goal, is a 43 yarder. And it was bears plays kicker, Cody Parkey kicked the ball, felt good, looked good. And then it veered left and just banged out right into the goalpost and went down and went out. And with that, the season was over for the Chicago Bears. And, you know, right away, I just felt a lot of sorrow for him because it brought back memories of um, Scott Norwood. I was a a young Buffalo Bills fan. And, you know, that was the heartbreaker because out of the four consecutive Super Bowls they went to, it was that first one that they should have won, you know, more than any of the others. And it was a similar thing, except that was in the Super Bowl. Down one point, Kick a game-winning field goal, and um, never forget hearing the announcer Vin Scully say "wide right, wide, wide right." You know, and he missed that field goal. And now, a lot of this discussion isn't even relevant now because it does seem that in the end, it wasn't so much uh, Parky's fault versus um, I forget which player it was for the Eagles. That just had a great defensive play. It looks like in the snap to to make the kick, uh, one of the Eagles players got his hand up and deflected the ball. Um, I mean, I haven't followed it closely enough because I'm following the border, but uh, maybe, maybe it, you know, but maybe it's wrong. But for what I see, it seems like there's a strong case to be made. He probably tipped it, so it was just a good defensive play, um, and it wasn't even his fault. His fault, but let's say let's say it was. I want to I want to give you a very important lesson that I've heard in football that applies to building narratives on political issues. See, being a kicker is a very tough job, in many ways, because a, a game. A football game is the mechanics, the complicated interlocking mechanics of a number of defensive and offensive plays that lead to yardage, lack of yardage, denying yardage on the defense, and eventually scoring. Whereas a kicker, just with his foot, has the ability to score three points and put them on the board. And it all comes down to you, and you're expected to make it because, well, you make the kick. But, you know, even the best of kickers – You don't convert 100% of them, especially, you know, in the 40 to 50-yard range. You know, and he already successfully kicked three field goals in that game responsible for the majority of the points the Bears scored that entire game. You know, so three out of four. I mean, this was, you know, ready, far, 43 yards. It's understandable you're going to miss it once in a while. So I'll never forget, you know, Scott Norwood, um... Felt terrible. I mean, because that was losing the Super Bowl. But you know, the Bills fans forgave him, and they they understood he was a good kicker, and you know, just missed that time, and and that was I, I believe that was forty eight yards, which especially back then was really at the border of, you know, the outward range of kickers back in the day. Seems like nowadays they kick them farther. They train to kick them farther. But back then, that was those considered a far field goal, and uh, I'll never forget there was a documentary i once watched on the on the bills you know from that era and they interviewed bruce smith and thurman thomas two hall of famers um one defensive lineman one uh, you know thurman thomas was the running back hall of famer and and he said look you know if you if you would look at the mechanics of that game he said both of them said i'm sure you could find areas where I I failed to run a better play where I could have gotten another first down, which would have led to another point. Um, Bruce Smith was saying, you know, I could have made another tackle. But, you know, that's not evident. It's not evident to the people, but those are the mechanics that cumulatively lead to a game – a, a winning the game or you know all of them could have gotten better maybe Thurman Thomas could have done better that drive Jim Kelly as the quarterback could have done better that drive that would have gotten them 10, 10 yards closer and he would have made the field goal but it all comes down to that dramatic play everyone always wants someone like the one man to step on the field and single-handedly win the game but it doesn't work that way it's kind of more subtle and it builds on itself it's team ball it's, it's the amalgamation of all those factors that create a game winning formula that you don't always see do you expect yeah the one guy to always make the, the the field goal but it doesn't work that way now if you you know miss a lot of field goals you're not a good uh, a good kicker but you know if you only miss them once in a while especially at a longer range you know just because it's a the game winning thing at the end of a season playoffs or Super Bowl doesn't mean it's any easier to kick. And, and you know what? It turns out in this case, it was the subtlety of the, you know, I could tell you it was one of the offensive linemen that didn't properly keep that Eagles player in check that he was able to tip the ball. But again, that's more subtle. You know, so in the sports media and the fan world, they're going to blame Cody Parkey. But anyway, that was just an interesting thought. I, um, very gracious thought from Thurman Thomas and Bruce Smith at the time, you know, why they felt you can't blame Scott Norwood. It's just like, that's just the most dramatic moment where, yeah, I mean, he's the guy, it's all in his hands now, and and he missed it. Now, if you always miss those moments, well, you know, there's a problem with you. But all it takes is one miss. But what about those times where we failed to make the plays, but they were very subtle? And this is what I feel now, you're going to say, well, what does this have to do with the border? This is what I feel has been lacking in the conservative movement for so long. Every once in a while, we have these dramatic moments where it's time to make a play. But the problem is we failed to build the narrative. We failed to report on all the cases for so long. So it allows the media to easily get up there and say – Not true. I don't see any terrorists at the border. No problems. Come on, this is not an emergency. Ha ha ha. Well, yeah, because we haven't had a movement building the case like we've been doing every opportunity to prove every point for years. It's a cumulative process. You have to be constantly making the best running plays, making the tackles. You can't just always expect that, yes, suddenly in one moment, we're going to be able to Score that play. And that's the thing. I mean, Trump right now, I've criticized him before, but he's doing what he can. As a movement, we have failed to build the case as forcefully as we we should have been doing. Imagine if you had an entire movement that would have spent last year doing what I was doing with the drug cartels and the drug crisis. Or doing the work that Brandon Darby does at Breitbart, Texas. You know what's interesting? Right now, you have the media saying their biggest thing is to try to say there's no middle is threat of terrorists at the border. They have to squelch that. Commensurate with the threat to their ideology is their degree of pushback. They have to squelch the truth on that. So that's the biggest news narrative. There's only six terrorists that ever came through. Now, now we're we're gonna address that. But I just want to say more general generally. We had Todd Benzman, the first retired DPS officer we had on our show, a couple weeks ago. We had him on the show after he came back from his trip to Panama demonstrating with photos and everything how there are hundreds at a time of a controlled flow. It's orchestrated. Our government has classified programs dealing with it, working with the Panamanian and Costa Rican government to have this controlled flow. Because they don't have the resources to stop it, and we don't want to invest the resources, so we at least try to get them to weed out some of the known terrorists. And they come north. Thousands. We apprehend thousands of Middle Easterners every year, but the trajectory, that's the important thing. you got to look at the trend. The trajectory is growing rapidly. As Jay Johnson, Obama's own DHS secretary, warned about in a memo to all federal and local law enforcement dealing with this, we have to uh, come up with a coordinated strategy to deal with SIAs. Well, this is two years later, three years later, and it's gotten a lot worse. So you would think Todd Bensman is the number one. Nobody is as prolific, as knowledgeable as him. Nobody else I know of has that skill set, being both a journalist covering terrorism in Latin America, but also working in um, Texas DPS's intel and, and terrorism division for a decade that has this experience, the media will not have him on. They're sitting and quoting this Alex clown from Cato that rebuts Todd, but they won't then bring on Todd. All of Cato's work is piggybacking. And and, and here's what's so dishonest, this Alex schmuck at Cato. At best, you could say his field is in economics. He's the guy that's gonna put out stuff telling you, no, 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 the more third world... Aliens you have that are impoverished, the bigger your GDP grows. Fine, whatever. But nobody could honestly say that he's a counterterrorism guy. He knows nothing other than to say, no, I don't see it. And, and, and what bothers me so much about the media, including a lot of conservative media, is if they don't see anything on their plate, they will not do the research. They will not spend the hours I spend, and I'm ashamed of it. You know, I wanted to spend more time last night with my wife. I was on the phone all night. With people, Texas DPS, DA, ICE, U.S. Attorneys, NYPD. I have some contacts now. They, as uh, Jason mentioned yesterday, they have tremendous intel on this issue, much better than the Feds. Um, they've done good work over the years, learning, studying, reading. You know the, the, these, and we're gonna get to this in a minute. These, these, just utter idiots scoff at. Hey, see, you didn't like – hey, Mark Levin, uh, you didn't like when uh, um, Obama used executive authority. Now, huh, now you're shilling for Trump? Well, details matter. Well, executive authority, well, what are you doing with it? I sat and studied the Emergencies Act Act of 1976. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Going through the power. And anyone who's studied this issue knows, like, hey, I might feel uncomfortable with the degree of power Congress delegated, but Congress delegated a lot of authority on that. And he has the he has the authority, certainly, but he does have an avenue to get appropriations for it. But that's the thing. Because not enough people have been doing the job I'm doing, the job Todd Benzman is doing, and a couple others, Breitbart, Texas. I really can't point to many people doing good work on this. It's allowed the other side to just like, huh, out of sight, out of mind, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Ha ha ha, there's no problem. I I just, it, it makes me sick. They think they could just look at Twitter and they know everything there is to know about the world. So anyway, even Fox News, they had on Todd Benzman, Right after he came back. But this week they haven't had him on. They should have him on every day. He is the other side of this story. How do you not have him on Fox? They won't have him on. I was just talking to Todd on the phone earlier this morning about that. They won't have him on. It's pathetic. If you're too good at what you do. And you have too much truth to give over. Your voice cannot be heard which is why I'm committed to growing the show and bringing on voices like that. There's no reason for it. There's no reason for this nonsense. But that's the problem. That that that's the profundity of of the analogy, the football analogy I gave you, I wanted to give over. That you know, we expect someone to just walk out on the field and just like win political battles for us in, in, in one shot on one leg. But it doesn't work like that. You have to constantly be pointing this out. So I, I want to go one at a time through some of the some of the stuff going on here. Um and then maybe we'll get to some other issues as well. But some of the important facts with the border, cartels, immigration That the media is hitting on. And and, and they revel in their ignorance. They're not ashamed of it. If they don't know about it. Then it doesn't exist. And they make sure not to know about it. Their minds are so shut. You know for people that call themselves progressive and open minded. They are so closed minded. They they, they just don't want to hear about. Things to expand their horizons. You know, I have a thirst for knowledge. Even those of you who are liberals and don't agree with me ideologically, I think you could appreciate – I want to learn about new new issues. I spend hours studying policies, and I, I recognize my limitation. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more you realize, wow, I wish I could have more time to study this. There's no humility to these people. The hubris, they just get in there and start, I mean, within three seconds, they know everything there is to know about any issue. Now, I've been building the case for these issues for years. These guys never paid attention. Finally, all the work we've been dealing with, all of it, the amalgamation of of immigration and national security and drugs and the cartels and gangs, all coming to the forefront. Years ago, I wrote the definitive piece, The Case for the Border Wall. San Diego fence, the Yuma fence. Everyone's talking about that now. We wrote about that years ago. Suddenly, everyone's an expert. But that—that's what I do. I sit and I read all the reports and I read everything. I talk to people. I research. You know, there's um, healthcare obviously is always going to be an issue, and I do want to get to that some point in in the near future. There's a lot of news on the healthcare front. There's a terrific book that just came out, Ensuring America's Health, the Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System by Christy Ford uh, Chapin. It's it's a very pricey hardcover, but the paperback is 26 bucks on, on Amazon. Um, really looks like a really good book. I saw a book review, and I was like, I, I got to read this. I don't know when, when I'm going to find the time to do it, but I always want to learn more. That's what we do here. We cover the issues broadly, not in a vacuum. You have to do it horizontally and vertical, go deep into the issue, but broadly into the issues that are parsimonious to it. But really, more than parsimonious, they're integral to understanding it. And That's how we studied crime, incarceration, federal drug trafficking charges, the cartels, understanding the cartels as an organization, as a national security threat. The gangs and the interplay, the symbiotic relationship between the transnational gangs and transnational cartels. So I have the definitive piece on this out today where more than half my piece is simply block quoting DEA's brand-new threat assessment that just came out. If the media would simply – I just distilled in quotes from the 180-page report. If the media would simply report on that – you know, Axios at least quoted from it a little bit bit today. Yeah, you know, uh, fentanyl is all a border problem. Wow. You finally admitted that, buddies. You finally admitted that. So that that's the that article is out today. And you look at it. You look at it. And you'll see what I'm saying. We don't just have an emergency at our border. We have an emergency in American cities. This is from the report. The Where is this? The Mexican cartels provide a steady sh- stream of drugs to the Chicago area. Though the Sinaloa cartel and CJNG, that's the Jalisco cartel, are the city's most notable sources of supply, other Mexican cartels that deliver drugs to the area include BLO, Gulf Cartel La Familia, Michalcian, and Los Guaros Unidos. Chicago is home to several street gangs that are heavily involved in drug distribution, and collectively these gangs serve as the primary mid-level and retail-level drug distributors for the cartels. These gangs are also responsible for a substantial portion of the city's violent crime. What's the most violent city in America now? Well, I was going to say Chicago. Baltimore is a, is a runner-up. You got Detroit. You got um, New Orleans. You got St. Louis. And here you have DEA telling you that a substantial portion of Chicago's violence is not kind of the typical inner city black-on-black black crime that you would imagine that exists. It's the transnational cartels that are multi-tens of billions of dollars of the in- industries that engage in endless cr- crimes, not just drug smuggling, as Jason said yesterday. They've evolved. The human trafficking, and not just sex trafficking, but labor trafficking on behalf of these unscrupulous businesses that donate to both parties. They actually contract, he was telling me this last night, they contract with the cartels to smuggle in slave labor. Where the hell is the sympathy for the illegals? Forget about Americans. But th- this is not said. But the point is, so much of our violent crime in our cities is from this. If this is not an emergency, I don't know what is. I don't know any other threat that is that substantial. In this day and age, this is the lesson of Hamas and the Gaza border. They don't challenge the Israelis directly in the traditional military sense, they use paramilitary, lawfare, and PR mixed together and subversion. This is what Jason was saying, how they don't quantify 21st century crime and national security threats. They're just completely out of touch. The world has changed. But law enforcement at a political level has not. And the media has no care to even study this stuff. If nothing else, I mean, as, as sad and dangerous as it is, it's fascinating. But the cartels, just like Hamas knows, they can't defeat Israeli military, they can't defeat the American military, which is why they so badly don't want our military at the border. But what they do is they flood us with migrants, tie down the border agents. Then the migrants, a lot of them are drug traffickers and mules themselves, but that's when they bring in all the bad dudes and the drugs. And they have spotters on our soil monitoring our agents. That's an invasion. It's worse than an invasion. See, at least in an invasion, at least in an invasion, okay, there's this area of this mileage they took over, and I could kick them out. They have dispersed their invasion into every corner of 50 states with their gang affiliates. What else has cost us trillions of dollars to our economy? In welfare, in crime, in drugs, 70,000 killed a year. What else is doing that to us? You want to talk about a national emergency? So there's that. I'm losing my voice here, but there's also another point to be made here. I want to move on to... Something very important here. Very, very important. The media is trying to debunk the national security stuff. Haha, they're saying only six known terrorists came through the southern border in the first half of last fiscal year. Well, first of all, it's the first half of one fiscal year. But um, now I don't know where they're getting that from, but. Before we get into the severity of the kind of Middle Eastern terrorism threat, which is very severe and and it's a growing problem, I just want to talk about the premise of their assertion. Isn't it funny how they always accuse us of being racist, of saying, oh, you know, Muslims are terrorists, yet they are insinuating that the only degree of national security – because I'm going to get to this point in a minute – Trump's emergency power to redirect DOD – Um, construction projects for the wall if he declares an emergency so they're saying well what legal rationale do you have to declare emergency oh middle easterners terrorists coming through wait stop freeze frame before we get to the veracity of of the middle eastern threat, they are insinuating that unless you're a muslim terrorist there's no national security threat so Sinaloa, Jalisco, Golfo, Zetas, MS-13, Mexican Mafia, that's not a problem. Having syndicates that, as Jason said on the show yesterday, you know, when I asked him, um, this is one of the most fascinating parts of the interview. I was like, hey, you know, are they working with Hezbollah or the you know, terrorists? And he was like, dude, the informants I have in these cartels, they would laugh at such a question. They view themselves as more powerful. They have syndicates in 45 countries. They have empires much more bigger than, in revenue than, than ISIS. They're every bit as violent as ISIS. I mean, I'm a huge hawk on, on Islamic terror, but it's like the notion that the only national security threat we could ever have is for Muslims is absurd. But that, that, that's essentially what the media is saying. It's pathetic. So, I mean, everything we mentioned about the drug gangs and cartels, like somehow that's not a national emergency. You have to show that it's all this Islamic terrorists. Now, let's go on to this Islamic terrorism. Known terrorists is a stupid measure because we don't know of too many terrorists. We have databases. But as you well know, if you go to the Middle East, there are a dime a dozen. There's millions of radical terrorists. Crazies willing to commit terrorism that are migrating to the West. So much of what is going on in Europe, you have coordinated known terrorists, and then you have first-timers that are just radicalized there. So the more important data point is how many SIAs, how many Middle Easterners are coming in. And that the number is they're apprehending thousands every year. Thousands every year. Very few of them are going to be on any database, even if they're currently engaged in terrorism. But that's not the point here. Todd Benzman did work showing hundreds of them at a time coming north. And a lot of them are known terrorists and they get deported by Panamanian authorities already. Together with the programs, we have agents down there. We have hardware. A lot, you know, to get deeper than that, it's classified. I, you know, he, he seems to know about it, but he wouldn't tell me, obviously. And that's a whole other part of this. More than anything, anything with Middle Easterners and Southern border is super, super classified. No one will talk to you. Even Jason mentioned on the air yesterday, he was like, Yeah, I'm not going to go further than that. He, all they'll tell you is they'll say it's a huge problem. But I I can't go into it. So that's part of the problem. We can't talk about it particularly with this. So, you know, the government won't release certain things They're like show it to me. Ha ha, what you're hiding behind its classified. Like, no, you idiots. There's a reason for that. But this is part of a general problem that they it's the same thing with Muslim immigration through um the visa system, the front door, not the border. They think we could just bring in a, a million um Muslim immigrants. And over the course of a few years, and it's not a problem. Here's the deal. If you have – so there's a couple a couple more points to make. Remember what we, we've been saying with Jason with all the shows we've been doing. For every person we apprehend, there's two that we don't apprehend. But the ratio of non-apprehended is even stronger by definition the worse you are the more the flow of the ones we do apprehend enables the worse ones to come in undetected. It's an economy. They're very, they're very efficient. They charge about $5,000 for a run-of-the-mill Central American bogus asylum. They take them and they shove them at the Border Patrol. They tie them up. That's when they bring in the, those that they're getting paid $30,000, and those are the Middle Easterners. Meaning the more you – don't want to meet a border agent. See, if you're a run of the mill Central American, you want to meet a border agent because thanks to the courts, you just surrender yourselves and say you have a credible fear and you're done. So, it's not such a hard job. You just dump them over overboard. The cartels won't charge you a lot. They'll pay in bulk. But if you're a Middle Easterner, believe me, the cartels aren't stupid. They know exactly the political dynamics of our law enforcement. And they know you badly don't want to get apprehended. They're going to squeeze a lot of juice out of you. So they would charge you $30,000. Now, like any supply and demand, you can only charge that if you show some sort of competency that you're successfully getting them over the border. Meaning if we would have a 90% interdiction rate of Middle Easterners, there are, I mean, it wouldn't work. They're, they couldn't charge $30,000. So you, it wouldn't surprise me if easily twenty to 30,000 a year are getting through, Middle Easterners. Now, a massive percentage of them are problematic. They're not known terrorists, but they are terrorists. Think about the other work that Benzman has done with the Karani trial. That the FBI's own 302s exposed in the Southern District of New York in this trial Sorry, Eastern District of New York, that there are, quote, hundreds of Hezbollah operatives in this country trained in cloak and dagger tactics to be unleashed at any moment. Unit 910. This is in the court documents, the FBI 302s. Do you understand that most of them didn't even come in through the border? Through the front door, we let them in. One the guy that Karani subject of the trial, we were naturalizing him while he was going overseas, training with his directly to attack us, surveilling media um military targets, Jewish businesses. This is what we have here. These are the ones we let in through our visa system. So certainly you could imagine if you're a Middle Eastern or coming at our border. And there are thousands of them. I forgot the exact number for FY 2018. Kirsten Nielsen sent it out. You better believe that's a major problem. Again, Rouhani said what? We're going to be attacked with drugs, migrants, terrorists, and bombs. I know you're going to say, "No, he didn't say that. He said if you don't work with us, um, you might be subject to that." Yeah, that that that's his way of saying he's gonna attack us, you fool. You know, just for any idiots. He didn't directly say he will attack us with that. Yeah, I know. I know. If you can't understand that, you're an idiot. So, um, that's the story with that. But. These idiots, it's their same ignorant ideology that they think like we have some database of every terrorist. I wish the extent of Islamic terrorism was limited to those we have in a database. If you're Rouhani, if you're Soleimani, and you want to bring in agents to this country, you're not going to bring in a known guy. It's a looming threat, and it's an increasing threat, and that's another issue. The trajectory, the trajectory on everything – On the numbers of aliens, numbers of bogus societies, number of SIAs, number of drugs, number of gangs, power of the cartels is getting worse by the day. So you got to look at a trajectory. That's an emergency. But of course they're going to ignore this all. But again, we failed to build this narrative for a long time. Now next I want to move on to – The other lie they're trying to do to undermine the notion that this is an urgent emergency uh, policy problem to deal with. So when they get these guys to finally spend 30 seconds to research the issue, they pull up the CBP data, and they're like, ha, 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 we only have a few hundred thousand coming over. You look at this issue uh – you know, in 2004, 2005, there were times we had 1.5 million. Oh, this is nothing like that. So that's that's their latest thing. It's it's not really a problem. Now, if they ever spent time to speak to any border agent, ICE agent, sheriff, and this is just at the border, you, you would understand that um, they've never dealt with something this severe. And, and the reason is both quantity and qualitatively. Qualitatively, that's very important. We have never had a quality of an invasion like we have today, and it's because of a lot of the aforementioned things we mentioned. So, first of all, on the numbers. So, one of the things they're missing is they're they're like looking often at 2016, 2017, or you know, particularly tw- f- fiscal year 2017. But we had fiscal year 2018, and now we're in fiscal year 2019. They're missing the the history, the trajectory. Yes, it used to be a lot of people. And you know what? It was an emergency then, and we were yelping. And you know what? Because of that emergency, we got something called the Secure Fence Act of 2006. And that is the authorization the president has to build a fence. Ironically, they want to deny it's a problem by shoving us. On to 2006, and then they say, oh, the president has no authority. Well, actually he does have the authority, and precisely because back then, in response to it, that's what we did. But then they forget something happened. Two things happened. The recession happened, and it shut down the migration. And eventually, just because we have 10% of Mexico's population in our country, legally and illegally, pretty much everyone who wanted to come came. And it, it slowed down. The so, so this is a different era. It's unfair to look at the Mexican migration. The emergency is that what started up again as a result of DACA in 2012 and all the other policies that Obama set forth, it spawned a new wave of Central American migration in 2014, 2015, 2016. Then when Trump came in, it went down to a trickle. And then now it's surging beyond belief, particularly the last 12 months, really particularly the last six months. It still hasn't plateaued yet. And it's surged past anything under the Obama era. And it's to the point now where we're already up to – we're on pace for about 750,000 apprehensions. But if you look at the interdiction rate, that's very likely going to be well over a million illegal people. Including, more importantly, the ones we don't catch. That is a crisis. But also, you got to look at the type. Asylum seeking has increased by over 2,000% since 2009. That's the crisis. See, back in the day, the numbers, you know, we just didn't have the Border Patrol. We didn't have enough agents. They just came in. Okay, it was one thing. Now... They're surrendering themselves to the agents in large numbers, the Central Americans. They're shutting down our border patrol. They're tying up our resources. That is something that has never happened to this degree. It's a different type of migration. Number three, and this is connected to it, the cartels are more powerful and dangerous than ever. They're using that unique flow of bogus asylum to orchestrate this tactical invasion of the gangs and the drugs. And number four connected to that is the gangs and the drugs. It's much worse than anything we experienced during the Mexican migration. Much worse. They forget, like, we had you all in the media called an opioid crisis, right? It's a crisis. And yet you deny the source and nature of it. That is the crisis the drugs, the gangs. And yes, the SIA problem is worse than it's ever been. The looming threat, the power of these cartels, the money they have. You see, they look at it so like Amelia Bedelia. They looked at more migration back then. Oh, shut up. Bunch of pathetic clowns. So that's the story with that. It's a very different form of migration, it's a lot more dangerous. And like we said, the the cartel violence we're seeing in our communities, the interior problems, is a bigger crisis than it's ever been. Which leads me to the final main point we wanted to discuss, which is Trump's emergency powers to redirect DOD appropriations to use for national defense projects that he sees fit and how that ties into the border. I don't know if the president's going to use it or not, but I believe he is right to at least leverage the threat against Congress given the way statute is written. And now you can understand why it's so important for the media to try to demolish the premise that we have an emergency because then they'll say, well, you can't declare an emergency because it's not. But it obviously is. So here's the power the president has. And by the way, just first off, I'm I'm seeing now that my friend Ron DeSantis was just inaugurated as governor in Florida. Very proud of him. Um, He just tweeted out, Ron, I say to you, judicial activism ends right here and right now. I'll only appoint judges who understand the proper role of the courts is to apply the law, and the Constitution is written not to legislate from the bench. The Constitution, not the judiciary, is supreme. I'm so proud. I mean, I'm just thinking about all the conversations we've had together. Um, good, good stuff. So, uh, you know, there's always some good news. Anyway, so about this emergency power. You have to understand, the. Fa- let's start with the foundation. There's authorization and there's appropriations. So you're authorized to do something and then, okay, you might be authorized, but where do you get the money from? No one disagrees the fact that you know, Article One, Section Nine says no money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and that's obviously um, the power to legislate—that is, congressional power. The president can never draw funds not pursuant to appropriation. But if it is pursuant, if Congress wants to delegate authority, they can do that. And Congress—you know—you are going to hear a lot of people suddenly talk about. You know, Congress delegating too much authority. And in general, we agree with that. But as we said before, with shutting down immigration, you can never compare executive action taken to secure our border versus opening up our border and bringing in or granting amnesty to people that, pursuant to law, have no right to be here and, pursuant to law, actually downright have to be deported. That is nullifying law, right? You can't compare that. Congress did not delegate broad authority for amnesty. They delegated broad authority to protect the country. So now you could disagree in some of the statutes that they didn't define it enough and gave the president too much broad authority. But you can't deny the fact that, A, it exists, and, B, to a certain extent, that is necessary to protect the country. You need the president to have lean and mean. If you have an invasion, you got to deal with it. So as far as the authorization is concerned… That's obviously – it's 1996 IRA, IRA um, explicitly uh, says that the president has the power to build all fencing in um, – this is section 102A of the 96 statute. Um, DHS shall take – I mean, now it's DHS, back then it was Attorney General, shall take such actions as may be necessary to install additional physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the United States border to deter illegal crossings in areas of high illegal entry into the United States. Secure Fence Act of 2006, in response to what they say was the last emergency, they talk about those numbers, inflated numbers of 2004-2005, they mandated DHS construct fence and quote along not less- than 700 miles of southwest border. Now, it's a debate over what is the minimum floor that a president must fulfill to fulfill that. Did Obama fulfill it with the vehicle barriers or not? I think he did not, but that's immaterial to this debate. Certainly, everyone agrees there's no ceiling. So the uh, Congressional Research Service, that is Congress's legislative arm, says that the president has full authority if he wants to. He has authorization to build um, anything. Quote. Indeed, nothing in current law would appear to bar DHS from installing hundreds of miles of additional physical barriers, um, and and that's that's the story. In addition, there's a drug trafficking law that authorizes the president to build fencing, construct support for counter drug activities, or. Activities to Counter Transnational Organized Crime by Constructing Roads and Fences and Installation of Lighting to Block Drug Smuggling Corridors. And it actually talks about countering TCOs, Transnational Criminal Organizations. Well, MS-13, Jalisco, Sinaloa, and Golfo have all been designated as TCOs. But it's more than that. You see, these cartels, we now know, are responsible for all the drug trafficking, all, all the drug deaths. Trump already declared in 2017 a public health emergency. Now, it's a little different, it's a different statute than the Emergencies Act of 1976 about the opioid crisis. So don't tell me there's no crisis. No one had a problem when he declared that. So you agree the opioid crisis is insane, killing 70,000 people. Well, this is the single biggest source of it. That's a rationale to call a national emergency. Okay? Don't tell me this is not a national defense emergency. You guys already know that. But anyway, that's a political argument we need to battle out in the media. It's not a legal argument. The statute doesn't put any conditions on the president making – declaring an emergency. It doesn't. It's plain and simple. It's not justiciable. Now, they're going to bring it to the courts, but – you know, they bring everything to the courts, but it shouldn't be justiciable. That is something if, – if Congress disagrees with his rationale and says no – This is not an emergency. We don't believe it. They have plenty of avenues to check him and make his life miserable. Now, Democrats only have control of the House. They don't have the Senate. So, you know, you got to win more elections. But anyway, so what are the consequences if he declares an emergency? So there's two relevant statutes as part of the Emergencies Act of 1976. There's Section 2808 of the Act. That allows the Secretary of Defense to, quote, undertake military construction prog- projects that are not otherwise authorized by law and are necessary to support such use of the armed forces, right? Once the president declares um, a national emergency. Or a declaration of war, obviously, but, you know, no one's declaring war. Now, a parallel statute 33 U.S. Code 2293 allows the Secretary during. This type of declared emergency to, quote, redirect the resources of the Department of the Army's civil works program, including funds, personnel, and equipment to construct or assist in the construction, operation, maintenance, and repair of authorized civil works, military construction, and civil defense projects that are essential to the national defense. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. When it comes to these statutes – there's no limit on how you know what he he must do. There's no criterion set forth in determining what is a national emergency. That's a political question. It's not a legal legal question. The assumption is the president will only use it when it's clearly needed. We already established there's three statutes that give him the authority to build a border wall. The question is where do you get the money? How do you get the appropriation? So these two statutes from the Emergencies Act allow him. By declaring emergency to then redirect existing unspent DOD funds, which there's tens of billions of that, which are slated to go to the Afghani government, $125 billion just on rebuilding Kabul, all this garbage. We've built border fences in Tunisia. I'm not kidding. How about our own? I mean, I'm sick of this where we've had 50 million undeclared wars. We have troops in 140 countries without congressional authorization, but no one has a problem. And in fact, Congress only has a problem when the president says he's going to pull out of an illegal operation without congressional authority. But somehow when it comes to our own border, I mean, I I joke around with people. It's not a joke. If Trump were to send troops into Mexico to repel the cartels, that would be the one Um, military deployment that ironically would not need congressional authorization because that's considered defensive and not an expeditionary um, offensive as as George Washington laid out in, in terms of the parameters. Everyone would agree, even during the time of our founding, where clearly any offensive thing would have required a declaration of war, that did not require it. That's needed. Now, That's not strong enough if you didn't have these two statutes allowing you to redirect funding, but you do. And that's it. So now the first statute, 2808, does say it has to be in support of armed forces. So presumably, if you just built a wall without troops there, without a military operation, you know, I don't, maybe you could say he doesn't fulfill it. But again, I would argue he should be deploying more troops anyway. That for sure we should be doing, even more than the wall. That we need to be doing. That would the, the, that that's actually what we always needed to do. Oh, the war on drugs didn't work yet because we didn't have a real war. A war on an item doesn't work. You go after the source and clean it out. Believe me, it will work. And again, it's not just drugs. They're multi-dimensional criminal organizations in forty-five countries. You got to be up to twenty-first century warfare. It's not going to take the form of what warfare used to look like, and you got to adapt to that. They're as powerful as any entity that's going to go to war with us. And then you have 33 U.S. Code 2293, which just gives broad authority to use resources of the Army Civil Works programs, including funds, personnel, and equipment, to construct any civil works, military construction, or civil defense projects. The only condition is that are essential to national defense. If this is not essential to national defense, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. But yeah, I mean, they'll they'll take him to court. There's no no question about it. There's nothing a judge can't do anymore. We've lost the whole understanding of what it means to have national defense. Where where these guys just refuse. What do you mean we have a we have a stop calling it an invasion? What is an invasion then? Tell me what else is causing so much fiscal security and cultural harm to our country. And it's directly coming in from our border. You have a military first and foremost to protect your border. There are other important areas where we need to wisely project power, but this is the most important aspect. And yet they look at it like, Really? Military? wall? Of course. Now, again, if the authority is not there, then you can't spend money. I'm not – I want to be very clear here. No matter how important I regard this, if you didn't have those two statutes, it would be a lot, a lot trickier to make this case. But you do have it. So then it's just you're, – you're just left with a political argument. Well, is this an emergency, and is this for national defense? And if you can't answer in the affirmative – you should be ashamed of yourself, and ashamed of your ignorance. And you have no business opining in this field without studying that. Some of us have spent years, painstaking hours, studying this issue, and yet these thumb suckers and eh, all these guys—they're just backing Trump. Yeah, dude, how come when I'm criticizing Trump from the right, none of them are ever there? When Trump caved on the Iran sanctions. How come none of them were doing – they only hit him from the left, these pseudo-conservatives. Anyway, got to run due TV. I'm going to be on Graham Ledger's show for those of you who watch One News Network, terrific alternative to Fox, as well as our own Blaze Media. We're going to have a lot more. This week is just heating up. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.